Good morning, everyone. My name is Derek, and I'm a friend of Bryn's, and I'm so honored that he asked while he gets away, a chance to get away and have a little vacation, he asked me to come and fill in. So I'm honored. This is the second time to be with you guys. I think I was here in January or February last year. It was a lot colder. I just remember that. But just as good to be here with you. Um, I grew up in Springfield, Illinois. Anybody been to Illinois? Land of Lincoln. Uh, I grew up there, and, and I, in Springfield High School, I had aspirations to want to be an architect. My dad was an engineer. My, my brother was a draftsman, sort of in the family. And so I always had this admiration for this house, the Frank Lloyd Wright house that was in our town, the Dana Thomas house. Frank Lloyd Wright, just a, an amazing architect. Here's a few of the pictures of some other houses that I found um, online that, uh, that I, I just appreciate and admire the design. But there's one in Mill Run, Pennsylvania called Falling Waters. He actually architected and built this house over a waterfall. Just a visionary guy. So take this one. He put it into practice to the extreme with this hotel in, uh, in Tokyo, the Imperio Hotel, uh, one of the most earthquake-prone areas in the world. And in his investigation, he decided and concluded that he could float, that was his word, float a foundation over 60 feet of mud that would be beneath this immense hotel. And it proved to be true. Actually, in 1923, when the hotel was complete, Tokyo got struck with one of the worst earthquakes in the area, 7.9. In 50 years, I think it was the worst. 100,000 people died. I found a few pictures of the hotel that stood in the midst of all the ruins of everything else. It withstood it all. And when asked about how that worked, Frank Lloyd Wright said, well, you just don't mess with the foundation. I'm a fan of Frank Lloyd Wright. However, 40 years later, because of that earthquake, the foundation started to, started to settle a bit in the mud and it became unstable, and that version of the Imperial Hotel had to be leveled in 1968. Here's the moral of the story. While maybe being clever or creative with foundations, using the stuff of this world to build our life foundation on is gonna be at the very best just stuff and temporal. We need something that's gonna be stronger, more assuring, more sufficient, especially when we ask those big life foundation type questions. And you will always ask these, whatever order or whatever time in your life, these four get asked. Where'd I come from? Where am I going? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with me? Why is there death and tragedy in the world? And, and what's the solution? There's a base hunger within us from which we can stand on to answer these sorts of questions. We need this. And you would think that Christians would be the ones that would give the right answer, that they would say Christ is the foundation upon which life is to be built upon. But surveys will reveal different uh, results. George Barna recently surveyed a batch of Christians asking them about truth. And of those questions, here are four I picked out. Here's one of them. It says, uh, do you view the Bible as the word of God? Only 40% believe the Bible, the scriptures, is the word of God. Here's a second one asked adults about truth. Do you believe truth can be discovered through human logic and personal experience? And I would add, in addition to the, what the Bible says about truth, look at that. Half of them said, sure, truth is anywhere and everywhere. Barna narrowed his search down to the millennial generation, those born in the early 1980s and, and 2000s, so they're in their teens or 20s right now, and they asked this question. This is the question surveyed uh, to, do you believe the Bible is the word of God and that it continues, it contains everything a person needs to know to live a meaningful life? Look at that. Almost 100% of the millennials surveyed said yes, but next question is the kicker. Look at this. 
Do you look to the Bible as your source for moral truth? Hmm. Breaks my heart, actually. I ache over that. There's almost this view today that theology is up here lofty, esoteric, and morality is down here. It's the stuff of the world, and they never meet. But I would say they get integrated in our life on a daily basis, on an occasional basis throughout every day, morality and theology wed and if you're blown by every wind of, of doctrine or ideology, then there's nothing deep and strong to hold you to know which is truth. And we become vulnerable, and it's, we're vulnerable when we don't have deep subterranean foundations and we become shaky. And so this morning, here's kind of where I want to go. I want to talk about having a strong subterranean foundation found in Christ, in him alone. Subterranean is the word I chose because it's that beneath the surface word. It is not seen to the eye always, uh, but it's always existence. It's, it's always there. It's always present. Leaders in this church, I think, value this about you. Bryn, I know, does. Having multiple coffees with Bryn, as I get to know the leaders here, they ache over this fact that maybe your foundation isn't as deep and strong as it should be. And I think the Apostle Paul is the same way. We're going to go to the book of Colossians, and I want to look at what he has to say to those believers in Colossae. He had a concern about their foundation, and I think that he uses these words to, to typify his concern. He uses words like suffer and toil and labor and struggle. I struggle on behalf of you, Paul says. The word struggle is actually equated to our word agony. He's agonizing about the foundation these believers are building their life on. And I wonder if they're asking the question, what's true anymore? They're having a hard time, I think. In the Colossian experience, here's what I think we can deduce. If you read the whole letter of Colossians, I think we can come up with this conclusion. These were Christians. They believed in Christ, but there was a multitude of ideas and philosophies swirling around their city and their region such that those guys deposited into this stew of idea that the meat of Christ in this stew was now being hard to discern and difficult to pick up. And they were wondering, what's true anymore? And if you question those things, it's really hard to know what is true if your base is shifting and it's not solid. And so Paul wants to address that because he's concerned about their weak foundation. I have three points this morning. Here's the first one, Paul's struggle. Paul struggled for this, that they would know what's hidden deep in Christ that in Christ is this foundation for life that you can build on. Ministry of Paul was one of agony and one of struggle and one of turmoil because he was concerned about the subterranean of believers. Here's what he says in Colossians 2. If you have your Bible, it'll be on the screen also, starting in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. He's writing to the Colossian Christians. And for those at Laodicea, it's a town just about 11 miles up the road from Colossae, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He's struggling for them that they would obtain Christ because in Christ alone are the treasures, he says, the riches of God's wisdom and the riches of God's knowledge. In Christ are these. These are treasures, not that you get when you pull the slot at the casino or you buy the lottery ticket with instant wealth. 
We're talking about the things that God put into the human heart. Eternity he's put within us. Any other earthly pursuit is going to be futile and unsatisfactory. We're talking about spiritual wisdom, spiritual knowledge from heaven that he is now hidden in Christ. Paul uses this phrase. It's like a mystery. God's mystery. I don't know if he's playing games with us like a mysterious game. I think it's this idea. It's God's strategy to save. One time it was concealed. But now in Christ, Paul says, this thing is revealed. In Christ, we see God's mystery, his saving strategy. So to know the mystery of God is to know Christ. And if you know Christ, you're in the know on God's purposes and on God's salvation strategy. All God's treasures, Paul says, all God's riches, his wisdom and knowledge. And he uses this phrase, they are hidden, hidden deep in Christ, hidden one time concealed, now made known in him, the very embodiment of God's wisdom is found in Jesus when he was here on earth. When I think of the word hidden, I think of those Russian dolls. Ever seen those? Do you have any of those Russian dolls? You open it up and there's another one. Open that up and there's another one. Open it up and you get all the way down to the smallest doll and the Russian tradition is inside that doll is a treasure of chocolate. I'm sure it had caramel around it. I'm just guessing. A treasure. Paul is saying the the blueprint of everything that exists is found hidden in Christ. Hidden in him, you know God's purpose for you and his strategy while you're here on this earth. Pursuing anything else, though, is futile, and we're tempted to pursue earthly wisdom, earthly knowledge, earthly treasures such that it's like chasing after wind, and we'll never get it, but we still pursue it. We still go after it to impress colleagues, that my knowledge impresses my friends, that maybe it presses my boss and I get a better, uh, a better step up the ladder. Knowledge is power, as the old adage goes. Knowledge is power. I mean, if you know algebra and there are friends that don't know algebra, man, you got a power position over them. If you got a smartphone, most of us do, but you're quicker than anybody else, there's power in your hand more than anyone else. Or if you've ever chased an electrical problem in your, in your home or your apartment, and you've been trying to trace that electrical issue down, and you spend multiple hours trying to figure that out, only, call, only to call the, electrical, the, the electrician, the expert in that area, and in minutes, he's got that thing figured out. Knowledge is power, literally in that case. <laughs> I think what Paul's trying to do here is he's trying to contrast earthly wisdom and God's wisdom, human knowledge and God's holy knowledge. And he says to the church, we have access to that. To the community of Christ, we have the understanding to discern so that we can grasp hold of what God has for us and we can let go and see the difference. What's Paul's struggle? He wants this church to be anchored deep into Christ. And to that, he issues this warning, point number two, Paul's warning about earthly philosophies and things that can delude and hold us captive. These Christians were being, they were being uh, swayed and they were being subtly influenced by promises about life and existence that was replacing the promises found in Christ and him being the theme of their life. Look at what he says in Colossians 2 verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. To delude is this idea of deceiving 
by reasoning and placing something alongside something else such that maybe this is true, now something new is set up beside it and it's really difficult to know now which is true, deluding them. And it happens, imagine with me, imagine. Let's bind the Bible with the Quran and the writings of Buddha all together. Let's bind them and publish it and sell it and say, this is the book of truth. Many people in our world would not know which of those, as a Christian worldview thinker, which of those is truth. Scripture is true. But we do that today where the Bible is bound with other man-made constructed books and they bind it with a nice leather-bound copy and they publish it. And I think the Bible actually takes a second place to some of those books. Paul is saying, be careful that you're not deluded. And to those Christians in Colossae, there are deceitful additives that were being, they were filtering their way into their life. He calls them plausible arguments. Plausible arguments. Things that they look right. They're well-constructed. They're convincing but the smell test proves they are false, they are empty. Paul issues this command. See to it. Be alert. Be on your guard that those things do not take you captive. Be on your guard not to be taken captive. Captivity, sometimes we think of as like I'm a victim, I had no choice in the matter, but the word Paul uses here is actually something that relates to their volitional desire to be in the midst of things lest they aren't in the know on everything. And what's happening is they're actually being deluded by the plausible arguments. They're allowing themselves to be persuaded by things that sound sufficient, but when compared to Christ, they're very insufficient. And he is concerned that those plausible arguments will actually carry them away from the truth. My question is, what are these Christians in Colossae being distracted by? What, what is delight to their eye that doesn't sound like Christ, that sounds better? What is causing them to drift is my question. Well, Paul says the plausible arguments could be anchored to this. He calls them philosophies, finite human reasoning, or empty deceit, persuasive deceivers masking what their message really is so it sounds right, or human tradition. He might be hinting at some Judaism going on in the first century world that was attached to mysticism, or elemental spirits of the world, the things that God makes, the elements he made to then form everything else. Those things, he says... They sound plausible, but they, if you fall in line with them and replace them for Christ, they will lead someone, Paul says, to idolatry, where we end up worshiping the created, not the creator. And he's very concerned about that because these philosophies, these worldviews, they're not according to Christ. They're not in conformity with Christ. They're not, they're not dependent upon Christ. They actually drive a wedge between us and God. In the first century world, what would be some of those imposter philosophies that Paul is having to deal with? Here's a few. They're technical. One of them is called docetism. Docetism is this denial of Jesus' humanity. Docetism relates to our word appearance. He just appeared to be a man, but he wasn't really man or human. On the other extreme is epinitism, which is this idea that denies Jesus' divinity, that he wasn't fully God. I thought he was 100% God and 100% man. Paul's having to deal with that, and these Christians are being persuaded by that. Another one is dualism. Dualism, where you have an integration of the body, soul, and spirit, but dualism separates it. So the body is like a weight. It's unnecessary. It's in the way. The soul is what God saves. The body doesn't matter. So live however you want with your body. Paul's really concerned about these additives. 
to their theology, that it will diminish their reality, their identity in Christ. He has a deep concern about them cracking their foundation. Take cement for just a minute. Cement, there are additional additives to cement that actually modify the the strengthening of it when it becomes concrete. They modify the hardening properties while preserving the quality of it. These, These additives are small in dose. The measurements are precise, but if the dose is off just a bit, if these additives are not aligned correctly, if the concrete temperature and the air temperature are not controlled, if the cement to water ratio is not exact, we get bubbles in the cement and that becomes a shaky foundation, unstable. It is unreliable. Okay, run with that metaphor for just a minute. There are ideological, philosophical things in our culture today that are saturating our culture today that we think about all the time that if we're not on guard, if we're not having our eyes open to the reality of what is around us, then we might see those things seeping into the subterranean of our life through the crawl spaces, touching the foundation of your life, cracking it, making it unstable, won't pass inspection, will it? Talked about a few things maybe in Paul's day. What are some isms today that might be a part of our world? Some imposter philosophies. Here's a few. One of them is no creator-ism. Sounds plausible, good argument, kind of empty though, I think. This idea that evolutionary processes and random chance is exactly the source for everything that exists. I thought there was a creator and a designer, no ultimate one. Another one is ethical dualism. We struggle with this, that how I work and think and behave outside of this room or outside of my small group or away from Christians is different than I am here. And so we have this dualism of my ethics. I mean, that's cutthroat out there. I got to compete. I got to get a job. I got to get a better grade. Mm, Is there no integration of the two? That would be situational Christianity or nationalism where my faith in Christ has to be tied to some political party. It's got to be. I mean, the values of the party and my faith have to be interwed. And if if you dare say something that isn't in, in alignment with someone else, then you might get challenged according to your faith. But aren't we citizens of heaven? I had someone say to me that I'm not a follower of a donkey or an elephant. I'm a follower of the lamb. Another one might be meism, where everything revolves around me. I mean, we're told to treat ourselves, Treat yourself to this. We're self-absorbed. Look out for number one. I mean, it is your time and it is your money. It is your career. It's your family. It's your relationship. It's yours. And so we have a love of me more than a love for what Christ might say into me. And my question is, am I really the one in control of my life? I don't know if I want to be in control of my life. Or how I feel is realism. (laughs) My way to talk about how subjectivity defines reality. How I feel about something must be real. And is there no objective truth beyond me and outside of me? Or tap into the energy, energyism, where we have this human important uh, ideology that you must tap into the energy of the earth, the energy of the universe. Remember, remember Avatar plugging into that tree? And is there no source beyond what I see? A couple more. Jesus is like us-ism. This is the view that Jesus was just a created being like us. He's just a product of God. And as Jesus is God of this planet, so therefore I can be God of my planet someday. And my question is, am I really equal to Jesus? Really? 
I mean, he's the designer. Paul says everything holds together in his hand. I'm not that. And lastly, another ism that I think we struggle with is moral therapeutic deism. The deism is this idea that God created everything, but he's up in heaven, stroking his long white beard, rocking on his chair in the ports of heaven, watching everything created from a distance. He's absent. He's not involved. And so therefore, I keep him at arm's length. I don't trust him. And by the way, his morals are out of date and they're irrelevant. So therapeutically speaking, his objective for me is to make me happy, to bless me, give me things. And so therefore, I'll sing to him. I love him. I'll talk with him on occasion. I like him because he's going to bless me and make me happy. Ultimately, therapeutic deism is this idea that we will not suffer on earth. Didn't Christ suffer? Apostles suffer? Christ's followers will suffer. These and many, many other isms saturate our culture and suddenly they get into our mind such that these become links in a chain that can shackle us down, that can imprison us. They're toxic if we're not aware to the development of our faith. And if we're not alert and if we're not on our toes, they'll seep into the foundation of our minds through, writ, through written literature and electronic means, and, and those will seep into my relationship, my marriage, my family, will creep into my family, that will creep into Rev 22, such that the gospel message can get diluted and become less, imp- less powerful than it's supposed to be, and that God's truth, therefore, gets lost. There's a metaphor I think is pretty interesting with the book of Colossians. We know this historically. Colossae is in the Lycus River Valley. It's a valley. Laodicea is there, another town called Hierapolis. It's an earthquake-prone area. We know that. We know about the time that Paul writes this letter in the early 60s AD that Laodicea gets hammered by an earthquake. We know that. It gets leveled. Colossae has tremors just 11 miles away. The soil is unstable. And I think, I wonder if Paul is running with that unstable foundation metaphor when he writes these things because they would have understood the tremors indicate something that's yet to come, a destruction yet to come. And I wonder if he's concerned about the philosophical, theological, ideological things that are finding their way into the life of this church in Colossae such that he is really concerned that they're in dangerous spot, that the foundation they think they're on is actually like sand. And so to that, Paul issues this charge, my third point. Paul's point, sufficient depth and strength are found in Christ alone. We're not talking Jesus plus some other idea or Jesus plus some other philosophy, just Jesus. He's the Lord over every line and every lure of secular wisdom. My friend says he can't just be prominent in the Christian's life. He's got to be preeminent in the Christian's life. Many times I think we make him just a prominent source amongst many, many others. Paul says this in Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Notice what he says here. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, the article there is significant. It's not as you received him as Lord. I don't think he's talking about when we received him as personal Lord and Savior. He's saying when you received the teachings of him being Lord, the scripturally based instruction from the apostle and his protégés, when you received that, He says, what you received there is something you should then walk upon. To the Christians in Corinth, 
In the first century world, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, similar things. What I received, I passed to you. Here's what he received. Christ died for sins according to scripture. He was buried. He was raised in the third day according to scripture. And my question is, what did he pass on to those Christians in Colossae? What scripturally based teaching did he pass on to them? And it made me think of this hymn. It's a first century song that he records in Colossians chapter one. Listen to the lyrics. For he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Those original believers in Colossae, they received authentic gospel truth from Paul and from his protégés. And I think here too, you receive on a constant basis Bryn and the leader's teaching, biblically grounded teaching that's trustworthy. You've received that. I'm really privileged to teach at a college here in town. I teach at Boise Bible College. Our view is to glorify God by doing three things. By preparing and training servant leaders who will serve in churches like this so that the gospel truth is spread. I think Rev 22, Eternity Bible College, Boise Bible College, we're all in the same boat. We're trying to prop up biblically sound, scripturally grounded truth about Christ. And I've seen it in the church, a couple of decades of serving on staffs at churches and in the Bible college realm, I've seen it, that those who receive are those with a heart of humility. I don't know it all. They might have a lot, but their heart texture is poised to receive. They're humble. They have a teachable spirit. Paul says, as you receive these teachings of Jesus, so walk in him. Walk in him. Man, we can walk for anything and everything these days. You can walk for this awareness. You can walk for this fundraiser. You can walk for this health reason. We can walk a lot. Paul's talking about walking in a manner worthy of God. And this is actually a command. Walk. Live. According to what you know from what you've received, walk, live. And your walk ought to be distinguishable. It ought to be something that's noticeable. It ought to be something that stands out. Some walks that stand out to me would be like Shaggy and Scooby-Doo. I mean, he's got a unique walk. You know that's, that's Shaggy. Or, or Mel Brooks's Igor or Igor, walk this way. Or, or if you're a Monty Python fan, the Ministry of Silly Walks is a significant thing. You can definitely identify different walks in people. And Paul is saying, as you receive this, your walk ought to be identifiably different and distinct in this culture. And the evidence ought to look like Jesus. What would that look like? Maybe a better question. What would it smell like? Christ had this aroma of sacrifice around him, this aroma of selflessness. And so when we walk in Christ, we have this aroma of, it's not about me. I love to walk. I like to walk with my wife. We walk around the block, try to do that regularly. We walk to the grocery store yesterday. Maybe sometimes we'll walk and get some coffee. And her and mine, uh, our desire is to walk hand in hand, sometimes finger locked. I like that. This journey you have with Christ is a finger-locked, hand-in-hand walk with Jesus. 
It's an intimate relationship. God puts his hand out first. He's the initiator by his grace. Hey, care to walk with me? And by our participation and our will and our desire, we put our hand in his hand. And this walk according to what we received is a hand-in-hand thing. What we receive, God does something. Paul says he actually does three things. If you look at the text in verses 6 and 7, he says, we've been rooted in Christ. He uses an agricultural term. This is a one-time action. It doesn't happen again. He's rooted us deep within, within him when we receive the sound teachings of Christ, deep and strong, into a foundation that's not like mine. It's beyond mine. Have you ever planted a tree in your yard or seen your parents plant a tree or someone? Late summer is a good time to plant a tree, early fall, and it takes the rest of the fall all through the winter into the spring for those roots to begin spreading. This word here isn't a long time period word. It is you have been rooted. Instantly, your roots have sunk deep into a subterranean, not in yourself, but into Christ's subterranean, and you tap into the mystery of God's wisdom and knowledge as you get into this relationship with Christ. But it goes on. Paul uses a couple other words. He does this when we walk. He builds us up. It's a, it's a move from agriculture now to construction. He is erecting something, presenting us in a continual way of constructing us into something. In, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says this. We're being built into a household with a foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building, that would be us, is joined together and grows to become a holy temple. Jesus replaces the temple as the access point to God. Now we are the access point to God as we surround ourselves around Christ. We now can approach God, not through any man, not through any institution, but by our relationship with him, we're being built. He does a third thing God does in this walk with Christ. He establishes our faith, sets us firm. He's, he almost like uses rebar, rebar in the cement to establish that highway. The rebar beneath the cement in the midst of it keeps us strong, strengthening us. Again, the irony is thick in my mind. The earthquake prone area that Colossae is built upon, roots in that soil don't go very far. Building anything in Colossae it's almost futile. What he's talking about is a foundation that's solid is what will last. So just review. How do we walk in Christ as Christians? Well, we receive teachings that are anchored into the scripture. And he does three things. He roots us so we bear fruit. He raised us, building us, and he rebarred us. Is that a word? Can I use that word? He's rebarring us so that we're solid. And as a result of being rooted and being built and established in Christ, here's something that naturally happens to us. We are grateful. I had to get another R, grateful for him. In Christ, we walk in this thankful attitude. The word there is Eucharista, the Eucharist, that communion meal that in this communion Thanksgiving, we walk naturally such that the Thanksgiving flows out of our life. And I think you would agree talking to God thankfully about the people like Bran and others who have taught us is so much better than griping, complaining about anything else. Those things help us in our walk. Here's some benefits. <clears throat> some benefits of walking hand in hand with Christ. Three things that help that are benefits to your subterranean in Christ. One is you can spot deception. Uh, you can spot falsehood. You can spot imposters. If you know the original, you can pick up the counterfeit. A second one is protection from false captivity. 
You don't need to fear the invisible supernatural realms, the demonic or satanic influences. You don't need to fear those things. In Christ, hand in hand, there is this third point, security, immeasurable security. We can walk confidently in Christ. In him, we can have this confidence, this assurance. He'll never, ever leave his, he'll never, ever let go of his hand from our grip. He'll, we let go. We pursue this. We chase after that. But his hand is always steady, always there. And when we walk hand in hand with him, there's a security there that's strong that we can be assured on. In Ohio State University in 1989, a building was built. It's called the Wexner Center of Performing Arts, the Wexner Center boasted as being America's first postmodern building. It's postmodern because the architect Peter Eisenman designed it without any purpose. No plan. Purposeless. I mean, why should our buildings have any design if our life doesn't have always some design or purpose? That was his ideology. So there are pillars in the building that don't support anything. There are stairways that don't go anywhere. Uh, There's a lot of money spent for this. And even in 2005, a major renovation because of the leaks in his postmodern building and the temperature control system that malfunctioned in art that was ruined in his purposeless building. It's the epitome of deconstruction in architecture, the epitome of postmodernity. If you were to ask Mr. Eisenman about his design and you said, hey, Pete, what'd you do with the foundation? Is it just as random as everything else? I think you'd hear silence. Crickets, in fact. You see, you can dabble with the infrastructure above, but you don't dare mess with foundation. I think Christ, our divine architect, knows when this world rocks your foundation. I don't think he's ignorant. I think he's aware of things that mess with your foundation. When you sense a 7.9 earthquake that shakes you spiritually, emotionally. When you sense your foundation is unstable and shifty and you don't have any control over it, grabbing hold of anything. When your foundation in the core of you has been rocked by death or disease, when the foundation of your existence has been rocked by divorce or you felt desertion by someone, there's nothing that will support you. There's nothing that will uphold you like Christ will, nothing. Only Christ will uphold you. He is enough. There's no need to look anywhere else. Let's pray about that, okay? Lord Jesus, you are the great designer and you indeed are our foundation. In you, we walk hand in hand. In you, we find assurance and security. In you, we have a subterranean that's solid, that's immovable, that we can stand on. And so on you, we stand ready, ready, eager for the day when you will conclude everything, when you will bring everything to a culmination as you have planned it. We're ready, and so we stand ready and alert and eager, longing for that day. Until then, we'll walk with you, knowing that we're rooted deep in you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Thanks. Amen.